This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Daniel Hosang and Joseph Lowndes, who are going to talk to us about producers, parasites, patriots, race, and the new right-wing politics of precarity. This book was published in 2019 by the University of Minnesota Press, and it's a really interesting investigation um, and unpacking of understandings around precarity and particularly our understandings of race um, when we think about questions of precarity in the United States and elsewhere, but centering mostly in the United States. But I'm going to let Dan and Joe talk to us a bit about that. First, I'd like to introduce our two authors, Dan Hosang and Joe, um, Joe Lowndes to the New Books Network and to ask them each to tell us a little bit about themselves and how they came to this project. Thanks, Lily, so much for having us and facilitating this conversation. Um, we started this project right after the 2010 midterm elections. We had noticed um, this really significant uptake, uptick in attacks against public sector or government unions, which are still mostly white workers, white, blue, and white-collar workers, and uh, particularly around these discourses of dependency and what we called, um, and what others have called, parasitism, namely that uh, these government workers were becoming a drain on the productive and hardworking uh, labor of society, uh, especially private sector workers. Uh, I'm trained as an ethnic studies scholar, um, and I uh, formerly held uh, an appointment in the political science department at uh, the University of Oregon with my colleague, Joe. Uh, so we were really interested in these questions of the interpretations of uh, that were being assigned, the meanings that were assigned to these subjects, and the ways they connected with longstanding racialized tropes about dependency that had uh, really been associated in particular with women of color in general, black women in particular. So why was it that white workers were suddenly being subject to this kind of new round of um, both stigmatization and blame? And that's kind of what uh, started the project, uh, you know, uh, for both of us. Yeah, I think what, uh, what Dan said captures the origin stories of the project I think also we uh, were interested in seeing how, you know, in 2010, it was abundantly clear two years after the uh, Great Recession that uh, we were in what scholars were beginning to call the second Gilded Age. And so we were curious as scholars who both work on 
uh, questions of race and class, what happens to um, you know, racial identifications and their uses in politics uh, in conditions that are changing economically? And, you know, in the case of the U.S., the um, kind of widening gulf between the very rich and everyone else. I'm, I'm a political scientist at the University of Oregon, uh, and my work is primarily on um, on right-wing politics, on racial politics, uh, on social movements, uh, and partly on U.S. presidential and party politics. And and so the book itself sort of dives in 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 the beginning to sort of unpack the frameworks that you are talking about. This question of the the second Gilded Age, um, the Great Recession. Um, in 2009 and 2010, um, the sort of accumulation of wealth within a you know very small group, at, in particular within the society. But you also talk about, as you say in the book, the new analytical frames for understanding the relationship between race, class, and state institutions as well. Can you talk a little bit about both the sort of braiding together, but also the unpacking that you've done throughout this book of looking at this question of class and race within our understanding, particularly the economic understanding um, of how these have often toggled together and also sort of been analyzed separately. Well, I think Joe and I have both thought in our respective work a lot about whiteness, uh, particularly in the mid to late 20th century, and the scholarship on it in revealing and demonstrating the ways that whiteness provides a certain kind of uh, guarantee or social insurance against uh, forms of economic and social precarity and instability. And certainly that's the long story of New Deal, social redistribution programs, uh, unemployment insurance, social security, et cetera. What we're struck by in the most recent downturn is that given the kind of continued upward redistribution of resources, so the intensifying of the 1%, um, left growing numbers of people who think of themselves as white, um, newly at risk for forms of uh, economic crisis, social crisis. Um, And so we're trying to think about how to both take those shifts seriously without imagining that they um, suggest somehow the dissolution of longstanding racial hierarchies. That is, how could whiteness still matter? How could inherited scripts of racial domination still matter? And at the same time, we could also take seriously um, the kind of movement of you know millions of people, white working and middle-class people in particular, who never thought they were going to be uh, subject to these forms of precarity and vulnerability, um, and, and we're now facing those. So th- those are some of the kind of like intellectual uh, histories and genealogies we were trying to think through, and some of the conjunctures that raise those questions for us. Mm-hmm. And there's also a you know a flip side to this that we try to explore in the book, which is that uh, in the post civil rights era, let's say. Uh, questions of, of um, the, the meanings of race, of anti-racism, of multiculturalism uh, have become kind of up for grabs or, or available to different kinds of uses. And so partly what we track is the, the way in which 
um, languages of multiculturalism, let's say, get used by um, uh, people promoting uh, kind of corporate visions or neoliberal uh, visions of politics in the U.S. so that blackness becomes something that um, is mobilized not on behalf of uh, social justice movements, let's say, or redistribution, but as a mark of um, kind of a kind of a new kind of Horatio Horatio Alger story, it kind of um, uh, you know through the right or particularly the Republican Party has used figures like Herman Cain or Ben Carson or 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 other uh, black figures who talk about their humble origins or ghetto origins or uh, um, you know the ways in which they have come out of um, increasing, uh, particularly difficult circumstances because of their blackness, having overcome that uh, and become successful, not as, not as a critique of a racist society, but as, um, uh, as, as an endorsement of the liberating possibilities of capitalism, that you could become, uh, that, that these are success stories, which, which show that the market works so well that, that uh, even forms of racial domination historically can be overcome by capitalism, can be overcome by uh, by hard work, individualism, entrepreneurship, etc. So those are kind of the you know the one side. It's kind of like the um, the partly what Dan is beginning to refer to as kind of a kind of a re-racialization of certain white people who are dropping off the bottom, and on the other hand, a kind of uh, symbolic partly cynical use of um, civil rights discourse or multicultural discourse to, uh, to really um, advance, you know, certain kinds of um, conservative economic agendas. And, and I, we should add to this that, I mean, this in no way disturbs the absolutely longstanding, unequal, racialized distributions of wealth, status, uh, power, life and death. So, um, and really since the Great Recession, those have only heightened. So we're trying to simultaneously think about a number of contradictions. How is it that um, at least a small number of figures of color in general and um, black electeds in particular are being valorized as neoliberal stalwarts, while growing numbers of white workers are facing new forms of precarity and uh, longstanding racial hierarchies are becoming more entrenched. And we had some sense that the kind of prevailing notions to sort this out either as a matter of class, class or race were inadequate to try to grapple with these contradictions. And that's what I wanted to ask you about next is this is the terminology that you use, racial transposition. Um, and this is part of, I think, what is framing a lot of what you're looking at as these sort of contradictions um, that are taking place and an understanding that race itself, we think about, you know, is, is a, the color of a person's skin, but that what you're talking about, as you noted, are these scripts, um, that the way that we sort of contextualize our understanding of things. Can you talk a little bit about the term and how you use it, um, within your, your research and the analysis in the book? So we take uh, racial scripts from the historian and ethnic studies scholar Natalia Molina's work. Um, and there's an, uh, a scripts really refers to the narratives or meanings assigned to race. And I think importantly, it doesn't actually, we're not talking about people's 
some notion of their empirical positioning within the social uh, hierarchy. So we're not talking about people losing their racial identity in any sense or that it's not becoming salient. But um, a notion of scripts works through the understanding that race is always a relational phenomenon, that we don't understand the meaning of blackness, of course, apart from whiteness, but that um, racial meanings are are, are co-produced between and among different groups. Um, And they're going to be subject to the forces, different forces at play in any particular moment. So to go back to the example of public sector workers, um, when, you know, anti-statist conservatives are trying to think about how do they stigmatize, and, you know, these longstanding public sector workers, they're teachers, they're toll booth collectors, uh, state workers, municipal workers, who never would have thought of themselves as kind of authors of a global economic crisis or somehow not pulling their weight, how do you make that legible to people in ways that um, will al- al- allow for a certain kind of public consent to take away protections and resources from those workers? And what we were struck by is to narrate that, to narrate the fact that they were somehow not deserving of remuneration, that to undermine their uh, pay and benefits would be to the benefit of the rest of the public, they turned on these scripts, scripts of dependency, um, kind of laziness, gluttony, that had always been racially associated um, with black and brown people in general and black and brown women in particular. Um, so if we think about debates over welfare dependence or immigrants as uh, dependent, um, so these scripts that had long justified their abandonment, attacks on welfare, attacks on uh, benefits and status for immigrants were now available to be brought to bear on uh, essentially a, a largely white workforce. Um, and again, it doesn't mean that these workers are their their whiteness is they're losing it in any sense, but it does mean that the scripts available in one context could be brought to bear to justify their uh, abandonment in another context. Yep, yeah, I think Dan covered it there. Okay. Um, I I just wanted to ask you about this one sort of quote that I I was really intrigued by that I think really elucidates what you're talking about in the introduction, where you note that Barack Obama's political rise exemplified these dual modalities as he was represented as both a fantasized racial threat to American national identity and as the clearest evidence of national redemption and exceptionalism. And you sort of note that he he's, you know, you don't you're not spending a lot of time talking about Barack Obama, but that he has this kind of um, he's he is drawn in a variety of ways, highlighting the kind of contradictions that you're talking about. Can you talk a, a little bit as we sort of move into the the other chapters of the book um, that sort of look at the sort of role of African-Americans. You have a whole chapter where you're talking about the, the Republican African-Americans uh, or conservative African-Americans. Can you talk a little bit about um, what you see in these kind of contradictions? I mean, on, on, on one sense, what we see here with the example of Obama is um, a certain kind of uh, quite familiar uh, and long-standing trope of, um, you know, what Afro-pessimists would call abjection, uh, and a sense that blackness itself resides outside the boundaries of the populace, the civic good of humanity itself. And you can think about the kind of 
caricatures of Obama, um, uh, the like, extremely like, virulently racist ones that's doing that kind of work. But we also think about the ways that Obama, uh, Obama's blackness becomes incorporated into kind of uh, exemplifying and demonstrating the exceptional qualities of American civic nationalism. And that it's possible for it then to work in both those registers, both as abjection and as uh, uh, something that reveals the kind of very uh, special and singular character of American political culture. So uh, we partly like reference that then as we talk about the kind of ascendancy of a certain and a relatively small group of black conservatives. Yeah, there aren't a lot. Right, right. And, and we're not making any claims about a kind of whole scale or even meaningful shift in kind of broad black uh, political behavior opinion. But we are asking how, how is it, can it, has it come to be that someone like Tim Scott, the um, Republican senator from South Carolina, can stand in as the most authentic exemplar of Tea Party uh, and libertarian conservative politics? not in a way that's deployed just to disavow uh, racial animus or intent, but to argue that Scott, through his own narrative of uplift, his celebration of free market principles, social conservatism, militarism, nationalism, represents the kind of purest realization of uh, the American dream in ways that seem far more authentic than someone like Mitt Romney. Um, And that can happen while we can also acknowledge the intensification of state violence against black communities, the prison industrial complex as well. They can work in both registers. I think that's right. And, you know, it's, it's not only do they, it's a work in both registers, it really shows kind of an open availability of these discourses, you know, for what, uh, what Obama represents to or represented to um, say democratic voters generally could be, you know, uh, something different for different constituencies, um, partly, uh, you know, an historic civil rights victory, partly the idea that um, he, you know, in the, say in the, his, his great uh, showing in the Iowa caucuses in 2008, he, um, you know, he says at the, that night, they said this day would never come. They said we would never get this far. And he never says exactly who the they is. Partly it's meant clearly to um, draw on, uh, you know, the idea that um, the civil rights movement has finally arrived at a certain place. In the same way at the Democratic Convention that year, there was a, you know, an I have a dream day uh, on, the, on the, the day that Obama spoke at the, um, at the convention in Denver that year. And so partly it's about the uses of civil rights as kind of an affective um, strategy as opposed to like a, you know, a directly um, drawing on specifically what civil rights organizations or the movement or specific figures were calling for in concrete ways. And so, you know, partly it's about that and partly it's about the ways in which, uh, as Dan said, Obama represents a kind of civic nationalism, a, a kind of redemptive character for American politics overall, which is something which really uh, goes across the spectrum, not just across Democratic voters, but among uh, Republicans as well. And, you know, and there's a way in which that that kind of strategy is one that's picked up by Republican elites who want to use figures like, say, Tim Scott or Alan West uh, or others to um, make a case for a particular kind of American exceptionalism, even as the very policies 
that they're promoting uh, will be uh, policies that will fall uh, hardest on, on black and brown people. And so I wanted to take you back. I mean, I know this is sort of the the chapter that falls in the middle of the book um, in terms of the the sort of incorporation of African American conservative African Americans. But you start out the the sort of the book talking about um, parasites of government, racialized anti-statism and white producerism. Um, and then of course move into the sort of poor white America. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about those two chapters um, and what you're sort of getting at in terms of understanding um, the role of white workers um, and what's sort of changing and um, shifting in that sort of context. Producerism, other scholars have written about uh, producerism as a kind of longstanding uh, from the 19th century trope in U.S. political culture and the way it authorizes a certain claim to civic participation, to sovereignty, to uh, not being subjected to the most trenchant forms of exploitation. And there had long been this association between whiteness and producerism, that whiteness, some, you know, oftentimes was understood to be coextensive with producerism. To be white meant you were autonomous, independent, not needing to rely on the labor and uh, redistributions of other people's work. Um, partly what we're trying to get at in the, in the second chapter in particular is, uh, and then by contrast, I should say that parasitism, the notion of dependence had often been highly racialized and certainly through the mid 20th century, um, it, one can argue those are pretty stable um, assignments and forms of meaning. Um, again, what we're trying to pick up on is in, in the wake of not just the great recession, but really since the kind of, um, widening uh, forms of economic inequality, you know, beginning in the early 1970s, that claims to uh, whiteness no longer uh, will authorize a producerist identity. Um, and when you're not, when you can't claim a producerist subjectivity in a society um, where your, you know, very claims to kind of membership, citizenship, belonging, and standing uh, rely on that. Um, that's what then makes you subject to um, broad forms of precarity and abandonment. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think about it historically, the Republican uh, strategy in the 1960s and 70s and 80s was to try to draw uh, white working class people, white working and middle class people out of the Democratic, out of the New Deal Democratic order. They try to make place for uh, union members, uh, poor whites, others, by saying, like, look, we are now the party that represents you. We don't represent you necessarily on the basis of, of, um, of class position as such, but in contrast to, uh, to African-Americans, Latinos, other ethnic minorities, uh, there's a gendered component to this, which is, which is clear as well, um, in an appeal to certain kinds of masculinity. But part of the idea was that the Republican Party says now we'll represent white people generally, you know, kind of kind of broadly. This was Nixon's silent majority or middle America or forgotten Americans. And, and the idea was that these people, they will all be kind of taken care of within this Republican fold. Uh, and so here we are, you know, half century later where whites are not taken care of in the ways that uh, 
they were in the kind of the New Deal and post-New Deal era. The um, uh, many whites have fallen kind of off the bottom. They are no longer they don't longer have the same kinds of protections, labor protections, union protections. Um, there's been decades of stagnant or declining wages. There's been the you know the the erosion of of other forms of public provision, which have made it that you you have um, whites who are failing by the standards of a capitalist society. So what what do Republicans do then, or what do conservatives do then for this population that they work so hard to bring over uh, onto the Republican side of the ledger? Well, part of it is if you you know we look at conservative writers like Kevin Williamson at National Review or people like Charles Murray who begin to refer to poor white people in kind of a re, a newly racialized language, a re-racialized language of um, that, that depict them, these whites as now um, socially and culturally disorganized, even in, in Charles Murray's case, genetically um, uh, incapable in certain respects. Languages that have been reserved for black and brown people is now being deployed against white people at the bottom in a way that, um, is used to justify, uh, you know, kind of a new economic order, which which uh, which has left a lot of people out. Again, as we as we strive to say over and over in the book, that white people have not suffered in the way that black and brown people have uh, by any index. But relatively, there has been there's been decline, which many um, many uh, researchers and scholars have pointed out. But so our question is partly what happens then? What what kind of identity shifts are going on when when whiteness becomes uh, is made vulnerable in these ways, and what kind of languages and discourses are being deployed to describe these folks, uh, and also how people themselves are responding, you know, uh, uh, to these um, to these kind of new conditions. And you spend a lot of time in the in the chapter on white precarity, the new racialization of white precarity. You delve deeply into a lot of the sort of popular discussions of um, you know what's going on with regard to opioid crises, what's going on with regard to you know unemployment um, and questions about masculinity um, that. This is a sort of new understanding, but it's not necessarily new understanding of people who um, are living in a very economically precarious situation. This time they are white, but they've also long been white, right? Right. Um, I I think what's new is this notion that um, they are fully culpable and the authors of their own failures and despair. And again, um, this question in these cultural registers of think about um, J.D. Vance's, you know, really, really popular book um, is is about, you know, his own life and about kind of the crisis in uh, of an area of Appalachia that's absolutely racialized as white, that it's a cultural failure. It's a failure of behavioral norms. It's a failure of family formation. It's a failure of self-discipline. Um, and again, those um, scripts and tropes that had long justified the abandonment of other groups were now easily ready to explain uh, the dynamics that he's writing about, uh, Vance and, and others. Um, and of course, what that disappears is a whole set of structural conditions of upward redistributions, um, uh, forms of, uh, intensifying exploitation. 
we can really see this in the context of the opioid crisis and what uh, social demographers have called white deaths of despair, where in some cohorts, you have white um, middle-aged people without a, a college education dying at higher rates than their uh, black and brown counterparts. We certainly never would have seen that kind of inverted disparity in the kind of long post-war era. And the question is not that uh, in this kind of new colorblind moment, it, it's only class that matters, but instead to think about the ways that longstanding forms of racial demonization were paradoxically <laughs> available um, to uh, brought to bear to explain, you know, this intense suffering and death, even in the kind of heartland of uh, Republican support. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And, and so I wanted to next move to the, the chapter, The Brown Brother for Donald Trump, The Multiculturalism of the Far Right. And you have an interesting sort of take on our thinking in terms of multiculturalism. Can you talk a little bit about um, what you saw in this research around issues in terms of multiculturalism and how it also sort of became um, part of the narrative of critique? Um, from the right? Here we're building on the work of uh, scholars who describe a, a kind of neoliberal multiculturalism, the ways that representations of racial difference, plurality, diversity, uh, have been taken up um, certainly in all across corporate America. So we can think about um, uh, all forms of uh, marketing, but also, you know, internal diversity offices, um, the ways that um, uh, Fortune 500 companies have mastered a certain language of diversity and inclusion. So we've argued that if, um, you know, corporate America, other mainstream institutions, the U.S. military um, have figured out how to make use of um, racial diversity to legitimate their own uh, standing and kind of ethical bearing, we shouldn't be surprised when even figures on the far right also come to understand that um, those kinds of incorporations and representations have payoff for them also, and that they can figure out ways, if the U.S. military can figure out how it can articulate and connect um, uh, images and representations of racial difference to strengthening, you know, military and colonial practice, um, then we shouldn't be surprised, again, that even figures on the far right might also uh, think about that as well. Although I should say, I think that we were a little surprised. You know, we were writing this book long before Trump was elected. And in some ways, it seemed that, you know, the particularly in the Republican primaries, that there was this kind of revolt of this, you know, of of um, you know the the actual you know white forgotten Americans of uh, you know that that we had been discussing that these were the, the the folks who felt shut out by kind of neoliberal elites were 
uh, all in for Trump across the across the primaries against Jeb Bush or Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio or any of these other candidates who who were more establishment candidates in some ways. But uh, so it seemed like in some ways, like, OK, this is going to be a reassertion of white supremacy with bared teeth in a clear way, which, of course, it was in the Trump campaign, uh, both in the primaries and in the general election and, of course, his presidency itself. But uh, it was then there a surprise to see that that kind of, a you know, uh, kind of pro-Trump forces in the streets uh, in in organizations like the Proud Boys or other kind of social formations who were organized partly around attacking anti-racist or anti-fascist activists uh, or or immigrant rights activists or others would uh, would show elements of multiculturalism even in their own rhetoric or discourse. So that you know, so there was in a way that uh, you know, people kept describing. And any article you'd see, and even among even among left journalists or even among uh, anti-racist activists, a continual description of groups like the uh, uh, the Proud Boys, these other kind of like street fighting far right groups, as white supremacists, as white nationalists, and it was increasingly clear that that was not uh, an accurate description of uh, a lot of these you know people in these organizations. But not only that, it was not an accurate description of even. Uh, the leadership itself. So here in um, in Oregon or up in Portland, there was a group called Patriot Prayer, which was is kind of connected to white supremacist groups and connected to extraordinary street violence and even uh, um, you know the, the, the murders of Jeremy Christian, a white supremacist on the uh, on the Mac, on the Max train. Even there, where you had this kind of um, open white supremacy, there was still this kind of odd multicultural language and identification happening. The, the leader of Patriot Prayer, Joey Gibson, is, is half Japanese and identifies as non-white. Uh, kind of number two lieutenant in that organization, a guy named Tiny Toesi, uh, is, is uh, Samoan and uh, doesn't identify as white. And then there's other folks in that, in that formation there and in the Proud Boys more generally where you have not only, um, uh, you know, kind of mixed mixed race, you know, formations, but the uses of uh, language and symbolism of civil rights or of multiculturalism, even within these organizations. And so partly, you know, we interviewed Joey Gibson and talked to him about this, and he told us that his heroes were Martin Luther King and the... Uh, uh, student activists in the Greensboro lunch counter sit-ins and, you know, this kind of um, uh, mixture of kind of a hodgepodge of, of kind of civil rights imagery and figures in kind of his uh, far-right political vision. And so what, you, what you're talking about in not just the individuals who are involved in some of these organizations that many of us kind of classify or think about as being white supremacist or alt-right, um, is that there's also a, a strange scrambling, um, as you sort of talk about throughout the book, of our understanding of who we think um, is inhabiting some of these organizations or doing some of this kind of advocacy, and then who's actually involved in it. I think this is also, a, I guess, a demonstration of what you say, this kind of tension um, that we're seeing in terms of class descriptors 
and racial descriptors and nationalistic descriptors as well. Can you talk a little bit about that, particularly with regard to the the final couple of chapters in the book and state abandonment and the militia revolt? Yeah, I mean, you know, just on that point, on the one hand, it's absolutely true that the, you know, the base and the overwhelming majority of people that are supporting the groups Joe is describing on the far right are white, they're men, it's a very kind of masculinist, patriarchal um, space formation and politics. But um, when we continue then to see um, men of color in particular, but even some women of color in leadership roles, you know, the usually the dominant understanding we have is either they're kind of fronts or they're somehow kind of brainwashed, that there's no way that they could reconcile their own racial identities, a recognition of U.S. racial subordination, and uh, the embrace of far-right politics. And what we're seeing in these groups is actually, we're not, it's certainly true that these groups are filled with their own kind of contradictions, um, but that there's an effort underway to do just that, to think about the ways that the forms of patriarchy, militarism, uh, you know, strong, strong um, uh, opposition to reproductive rights uh, could be joined with a certain politics of uh, racial uplift, um, and even, as strange as it sounds, anti-racism. At least from their perspective, these groups see themselves as engaged in a certain kind of anti-racism. Um, and the reason I think that matters towards our last chapter is we're, sh- we're trying to make the argument that these identities in this moment of crisis are actually much more open than we might, than we might initially think about and than, than they might seem. So we kind of critique a certain tendency to describe the current moment of entrenched political conflict as just based on, you know, the kind of the language of political tribes, that you simply have identity-based groups that are uh, fully coherent, self-contained, they're already realized in their interests, uh, battling out, you know, the coasts versus the um, heartland um, for the soul of the nation. And I think what the... Um, Multiculturalism, the far right, what some of the um, occupiers who took over a bird sanctuary in early 2015, these were militia groups that took over a federal uh, wildlife refuge in eastern Oregon to protest uh, kind of the, you know, what they described as overreaching federal power. Um, We're, you know, on the one hand, those are militia groups with with far right anti-statist politics, but there's an interesting way that their anti-statism converges with actually longstanding anti-statism among uh, groups of color, even on the left, that talk about um, uh, the way that kind of abuses of state power. Now, the militia groups um, can't imagine a resolution to that other than a return to kind of white producerism, um, the kind of uh, all to the either the uh, abolition of the state or certainly its um, marginalization. But we make the argument, actually, that if they really want to attend to the forms of precarity and uncertainty and crisis they're facing, even white communities in places like eastern and southern Oregon, they're experiencing really significant levels of unemployment, uh, poverty, um, they actually could identify with and imagine and join, um, you know, the kind of cutting edge racial justice formations in the country, groups like Black Lives Matter. So that there is an openness to these forms of political identification that we haven't witnessed, um, uh, certainly, uh, again, you know, before the last 10 years. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And partly what we want to argue is that the language of producer and parasite, the language of, you know, uh, people who are the, you know, kind of autonomous and independent uh, figures, individual uh, figures in, of American uh, American political imagination uh, will necessarily, um, you know, uh, make it much harder to find forms of collective action to challenge the, the you know, the, the structures that cause all this suffering. So in the case of Eastern and Southern Oregon, you know, that um, there is, if people are, the, the timber industry has abandoned these people, the federal government has abandoned these people, the tax structure of Oregon has abandoned these people. There, I don't think that there's a lot of, uh, a lot of people in the you know wealthy areas of Multnomah County who are terribly concerned about what's going on in Douglas County or Josephine County or Harney County in Oregon. These are outlying rural areas. Uh, but partly the people in these areas where there is suffering, they will blame you know, the Bureau of Land Management uh, for their problems because they see them as standing in the way of their ability to um, act as kind of, you know, settler pioneers who can graze and ranch and mine uh, on their own. But of course it was never the case that these people were um, individual, uh, uh, you know, frontiers men and women who did not have state support. I mean, the first state support of course is, is uh, wiping out the Nez Perce and the other tribes that are here that make the way for white settler culture to begin with. But the other thing is that these, uh, uh, these folks were, um, you know, uh, imagining this kind of crossing over the Rocky Mountains and 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 uh, covered wagons as a as a kind of like uh, heroic story of self fulfillment. It doesn't allow them to think about the possibility of how they might work together and how they might work with other people in collectively solving problems and and you know and collectively figuring out. Uh, why resources aren't distributed their way, why they uh, can't um, farm or ranch or mine the way that they once did. So partly what we what we want to say is that it's it's elements of kind of ideological whiteness, maybe we could say, that stand in the way of the possibility of joining other struggles, joining other struggles that could uh, begin to ameliorate some of the suffering and maybe you know transform some of the um, the most destructive, uh, elements of modern capitalism, which, which you know, ultimately we argue that um, are at the heart of um, a lot of these problems, and that that's also not where a lot of the attention is directed, in terms of what you found as you know, in sort of exploring these different sort of case studies, is that it's it's often not ex- exploring what's the problem with capitalism. It's more of what's what's the problem with the state or what's the problem with, you know, sort of other people being unable to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Is that correct? Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, partly we want to say then, therefore, if, if you're able to turn it, I mean, the state is a problem, too. And of course, the state is made up of a panoply of institutions, which aren't always or sometimes at odds with each other. But if you were to think about what. Where, where is the shared ground between Eastern Oregon and uh, Ferguson, Missouri, and Flint, Michigan, and uh, uh, the U.S.-Mexican border? You might find that, you know, certainly um, 
white people have a very different experience than people of color in other areas, but there is there we think that there is shared ground in what it means to have both state predation and state abandonment and, and capital predation, and what the possibilities might look like uh, if we were to uh, imagine um, these things differently. And just, you know, to add to that, I mean, those links, you know, there's a a certain kind of reductionist politics, which argues, well, what you have to do is efface or ignore the very different conditions in all of those places between Ferguson, Flint, uh, Eastern Oregon, uh, the border. And that's not our argument at all. But um, we're we're arguing for a politics that takes those differences quite seriously but also thinks about how there are available genealogies of critique and resistance that foreground the role of the state, that foreground the role of capitalism and the kind of intensification of class power in ways that could link them together um, and that they're not somehow permanently sealed off from one another, nor are the underlying causes of their conditions altogether different. And I wanted to ask you, because you start out the book in a really interesting way, which is surprising to the reader in telling the initial story that you do about Joey Gibson. Is that correct? Um, and and I was curious, as you were doing the work and sort of delving into the research, what was it that you found most surprising in terms of the thesis that you were building and and what you saw as you were doing the research? I think in particular, you know, we, we had this interview with Joey Gibson um, on the one hand, right in the middle as uh, Patriot Prayer, his group, was engaging in these very confrontational, often violent protests with... Um, both, you know, some forces on the left, but also like a whole range of just uh, progressive groups and ideas in general. Um, and on the other hand, we heard Gibson then talking about the scourge of mass incarceration, um, kind of trying to articulate some distance from um, the most focused kinds of nativist politics. He really had a critique of, you know, capitalism in some ways. And it's certainly less that whether he was uh, sympathetic or not, and more that, you know, this kind of key figure on the right is trying to assimilate and take in different political traditions and identities and orientations in ways that I think struck us as quite dynamic and formidable. Um, And it left us with the feeling that if we only, if our only kind of response to that is, you're a white nationalist um, uh, and, and unredeemed, or you're just trying to cloak it, um, which is on the one hand not true, but but the notion that that's all there is to their politics, and that there's not they're not themselves also trying to think about the contradictions and spaces and incorporations they might make. We will actually underestimate how uh, formidable they can be, and I think the kind of common sense, you know, or one more familiar way to think about it is. You know, the kind of um, after Trump's election in 2016, uh, even among his most vociferous critics, people acknowledging, well, there were people in my family, people I knew, um, others who I didn't think would be drawn to those politics who indeed were. So I think this is an open question about taking seriously the kind of dynamism of uh, conservative and in some ways far-right politics today so that we can offer, um, you know, a more compelling and generative 
alternative. Yeah, I would say I, I think that that everything that Dan said is right. And I, the, in terms of the what was surprising, I think we found surprises all the way through. And each one of our case studies, you know, we we and partly I think it might have been the lens that we were using to to uh, look through it. But you know, to see, for instance, you know, um, militia supporters uh, working briefly with Black Lives Matter activists around a police bill in Portland or um, or or the use of a, a term rural lives matter as a way of kind of, you know, a form of identification, uh, maybe partly meant ironically, but also as identification in that context. Or, you know, the the um, the the real language of of. Um, at best condescending language used by people at National Review or Charles Murray to describe the white poor, um, you know, it, it was, was uh, that, that was quite surprising to us. So I think, uh, you know, we kept finding these ways in which both race and class were mobilized and moved around in, in odd kind of combinations to, um, to do different kinds of work. Uh, and and kinds of work that actually that, that that mattered politically that had concrete effects in the world uh, to see it over and over and, and kind of realize continually realize how open and fluid some of this stuff is and then you know which kept challenging us to think like well what do we make of this what's going on how do we theorize this how do we frame this even uh, and what what kind of uh, what kind of analysis uh, can, can we offer in the face of um, of you know of of all this, and I'm not sure we actually fully achieve that in the book because partly I, th- I think it is more open than we can even quite come to terms with. But um, I, I think um, uh, I think what we meant most of all then finally with this is to um, you know maybe orient us to the surprising nature of of politics in this moment around these things. I mean, that's what I I found to be interesting in the conclusive sort of way. The book is not necessarily conclusive. Um, and I, I thought that was that was interesting in terms of opening up um, considerations and rethinking some of the sort of, as you say, the labels and the and the categories that we often shift and sort um, political activities into as well. So I wanted to ask each of you, Dan and Joe, what are you working on now? And perhaps you'll come and talk to me again about your new projects. I'm working on a book called A Wider a Wider Type of Freedom, uh, Reimagining Racial Justice, which is uh, laying out in uh, kind of theory, method, and practice histories of racial justice that imagined um, and fought for uh, broad scale systematic transformation. So they didn't just want incorporation into the state, into the market, into military, but they had much more universal bearings and visions um, for social transformation. Um, so it's a short teaching book, uh, kind of uh, trying to make visible to students, especially a history of racial justice politics that's less ameliorative um, and incorporative and more about um, broad scale transformation. Fascinating. Joe? I'm working on a um, a book on kind of a kind of a political history of right wing populism in the U.S. since the 1960s, uh, partly both inside of electoral politics and outside, uh, from you know kind of white supremacist organizations to uh, insurgencies in the Republican Party to the ways in which some of the stuff uh, 
also infected the Democratic Party, say, in the 1990s. So it's it's kind of a um, uh, a walk through from the kind of the Wallace campaigns, the George Wallace's campaigns, the late 1960s through the uh, Buchanan campaigns through uh, the early 1990s uh, to Trump's election 2016. So it's partly about a series of insurrections within the Republican Party. Partly it's about uh, broader changes and how people are imagining American majoritarianism or uh, an American middle. So that's, that's one project. Dan and I, of course, are, are continually hatching new ideas for uh, joint projects as well, which is probably too soon to talk about. But Okay. All right. Well, I hope that each of you or both of you together, when you hatch that new project and get it going, um, will come back on the new books um, in political science podcast and talk to me about them. Um, today, I'm talking to Daniel Hosing and Joseph Louds about producers, parasites, patriots, race, and the new right-wing politics of precarity, published in 2019 by the University of Minnesota Press. Gentlemen, where might somebody pick up a copy of your book? Well, if you're in the Northwest, we know you can get it at Powell's, the landmark bookstore in downtown Portland. Um, it's awesome. Press, yeah. And of course, the University of Minnesota Press website, I assume. Yes. Mm-hmm. And other places as well. Yeah. We won't mention them. We, yeah, we, we hope it'll get into more brick and mortar stores this time on, but we'll see, I guess. Um, I wanted to thank you, Dan and Joe, for being with me today and for talking about producers, parasites, and patriots. Thank you, well, thank you so much for having us, and thanks for your great questions, Lily. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Lily.